Good morning. If you have your Bibles, do you want to turn to um, Proverbs chapter 3? We're going to start there and see where we go. Okay, Proverbs 3, verse 3 says this. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. As Simon mentioned before the video began, we've just been celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and we held a party, like a Thanksgiving celebration night, um, a few weeks ago, and some of you came along, and we were really grateful to have you there to celebrate with us. Thank you. And as we were preparing for this party, I was taking time to kind of look back over the last 10 years and to just kind of review and, and remind myself, really, of the journey that it has been. And I think what I was remembering were kind of moments of great joy and celebration and moments that felt like you know, they were just packed full of victory, but also I was remembering moments of great challenge, of great difficulty, and also of great pain. And in all of my reflecting and my looking back, I was just overwhelmed really over and over and over again by just how faithful God has been to us in our journey and how present he has been with us in every one of those moments. And, and it was, it's been quite a special time, actually, looking back and just remembering. And as well as taking time to look back over the last 10 years, we've begun to look forward for about you know, what's to come. What about the next 10 years? Where are we going? What's, what's the, the vision that God is unfolding to us for the next 10? What is it that he's calling us to do in the next 10? Where is it he's calling us to move out and expand into in the next 10? And how do we get ourselves ready for that? And if you know me at all, you'll know that I am a visionary at heart, I am a visionary and I'm a strategist. I don't find it difficult to dream and I don't find it difficult to actually dream quite big. And I'm not scared of big ideas. You know, I like that kind of thing and I I like to to try and think about what might be impossible and how we're going to do it. And, And I like to see where we are now and I like to dream big about where we might be able to go. And then I love to work out how we're going to go from here to there. It just, it makes my life exciting. I love it. I love a bit of vision and I love strategy. But... I think even for people like me, sometimes people who aren't scared of the big idea, even sometimes even for us, it's like when God drops a vision in your heart, there are those moments in time where that vision can feel just that little bit too big. You know what I mean? Even for me, particularly right now, as God is talking about what is to come for the next 10 years, there's been moments, many of them, where I thought, well, this just feels a bit too big. It just feels a little bit too impossible, you know? And I can stand there, and I'm sure you can relate to this. Sometimes I stand there and I'm hearing God speak to me and I'm looking at the thing that he's painting. You know, this is what I'm calling you to do. And then I look at myself and I look at what I have in my hands and and I feel like I'm just not enough. I don't have enough to fulfill it. It feels too impossible. I will never forget the very first day that I walked into a slum community. Has anybody here ever, put your hand up, ever been to a slum Oh, amazing, quite a few of you. It's quite an experience, isn't it, the first time you walk in? And I think for me, I just, 
I had seen all the adverts on TV, you know, the ones for like Oxfam or Compassion or Save the Children, and, and I, I'm a, I love to read, I love words, and so I read many documents, many kind of, um, you know, articles and things all about poverty and how it works in the world and the, and the issues that are around and about, but I had never seen for myself extreme poverty. I'd never seen it with my own eyes. I'd always seen it through the eyes of somebody else or through the, the eyes of the TV, you know? And I will never forget the first day we walked in and, and I just wasn't ready for what I experienced. I wasn't prepared for what I saw. And as I walked in, we went down this little entrance way and the, the, the passageways through are very, very narrow. So sometimes you have to kind of walk down like sideways. And I'm walking down these little winding passageways and, and there's sewage just running through the streets and the smell is so overpowering. It's just like, whoa, it just hits your senses, you know? And I'm walking through and I'm winding my way around and there's all these overcrowded mud houses and people everywhere and noise and chaos. And then there's these little children, just hundreds of them, thousands actually, running around with little swollen bellies, either naked or kind of, you know, raggy clothes. And, and there's, just, there's just chaos, and there's sickness, and there's sanitation issues, and there's just, there's just chaos, it's just chaos. And I remember walking through, and, and, I, and it just, I didn't know what to do with myself. Because it felt like that thing that I'd read about, that thing that I'd watched documentaries about, that thing that I'd studied about suddenly wasn't, wasn't like a far-flung, far-away thing. It was like standing right in front of me. It was in a person, and they were tangible, and they were breathing in and out, and they were looking me in the eye, and it just demanded a response. It demanded a response. And I stood there, and I'm just like in this slum, and it's just the chaos of it all just surrounding me, and I'm feeling totally overwhelmed by what I'm experiencing. And then the Lord spoke, and he just said, and this is where I've called you. And I was just like, what? See, when, when we left to go to live in Africa, we hadn't done any training on how to work overseas. We hadn't got a degree in international development. My husband has a degree in physics, for goodness sakes. That's not so helpful when you're trying to deal with the issues of malnutrition, you know? And um, we hadn't been to theology school. We hadn't, we hadn't done anything. We hadn't done a YWAM DTS. We hadn't done the Vineyard Hub. We hadn't done anything. And so we're standing there in this kind of crazy moment of chaos and poverty and disease and sickness and corruption. And then the Lord's saying, I've called you to work here. And we're just looking at that and then looking at ourselves and saying, we're not enough. And we couldn't understand how, with our little lives, with the tiny thing that we could bring, that we had to offer, which really felt very, very insignificant, how we could make any kind of change, how we could bring any kind of change to that place, even at its like most basic level. And it was, it was a very overwhelming moment for us. We felt incredibly underqualified and massively out of our depth. I think as um, believers, we, we can often be our own worst critics. I think in the church, we play this game of comparison constantly, and we play it very, very well. Comparison with our marriages, with our relationships, with our work life, with our houses, with our cars, with our children, with our social life, with our worship life. And we compare ourselves to each other all of the time. And so quickly and so easily, we can decide that we don't quite make the grade. 
And I'm not quite as clever or as eloquent as Steve, or I'm not quite as caring or as nurturing or as loving as Lynn, and I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, I'm not that enough, I'm not that enough, I'm just not enough. And we can write ourselves off and disqualify ourselves from him and from his service. But here is the thing. This is what I've come to discover. is so often how we see ourselves and what we believe about ourselves or what we say about ourselves or what the world sees when they look at us, what the world believes about us or what the world says about us is often very, very contrary to what Jesus says, what Jesus believes, and what Jesus sees when he looks at us. And we have to decide whose opinion we are going to come into alignment with. We have to decide. There's a story in the Gospel of John that over the years the Lord has brought me back to again and again and again. I want you to turn to it. It's in John chapter 6. This is the story of when Jesus feeds the 5,000 I, can't, I, I speak from this story, I don't know, I've, I have done for many, many years. There's so much in this, in this tiny little passage, I love it. But let's just read it. Verse 1, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind exactly what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of glass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So this really was a crazy, impossible situation that Jesus and the disciples found themselves in that day, right? 5,000 hungry people and a tiny amount of food. And as the story starts to play out, you know, the crowds start to come towards Jesus and they're hungry and he's seeing them all there, you know, and he turns to Philip and he says, so Philip, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get some bread from? How are we going to feed these people? And Philip answers him. Now, what you have to know about Philip is Philip was an amazing disciple. He was known as the evangelist, and by this point in time, he had been journeying with Jesus for quite a little while, and he would have seen Jesus before many, you know, miracle signs and wonders. And so his response to Jesus in this moment, it surprises me, and it slightly confuses me, because he says this, six months' wages won't buy enough bread for everyone to eat and have a bite. And if you think about it, he was right, wasn't he? He was factually completely correct. His answer was, in reality, in the natural, this isn't enough. We don't have enough. We don't have what we need. But then another answer comes along, and here comes a little boy. And here comes this boy, and he's carrying five loaves and two fish. And what's amazing to me is, in this moment, as this little boy comes forward, carrying his tiny little offering, both Jesus and the disciples, they see exactly the same thing, right? They both see a small boy with a little packed lunch. 
but how they respond to it is actually very, very different. See, the disciples look at it and they say this, how far will this go among so many? It's not enough. But Jesus, Jesus, when he sees it, he looks at it and he goes, perfect. Have everybody sit down, get them ready to eat. And what I love is that Jesus, he rejects natural wisdom, doesn't he? He rejects the facts of the situation and he says, I'm going to go to the small. I'm going to go to that thing that looks insignificant. I choose to go to the one that isn't quite enough. And I take hold of that little tiny offering and watch what's going to happen when I fill it with myself. And that's what he does, doesn't he? He takes the bread and he fills it with himself and then suddenly a beautiful miracle takes place and everybody gets to eat and they have food left over. I remember um, the first time we ever saw multiplication of food, we, uh, we, <laughs> we decided, we felt God tell us to throw a Christmas banquet for everybody who lived in a particular slum community, and so we invited them all to come, and, and we didn't have much, we didn't have much money, we had a very small team, but we pulled all our resources together, we asked some ladies from the village to come and prepare the food, and, and we were all good to go, and a few, just a few weeks beforehand, one of my Ugandan staff members said to me, I've got this great idea, Nicola, I think we should buy a chicken for every family that's coming to the party and give it to them as a gift for Christmas. So when it comes to Christmas lunch, they can actually sit down and eat a chicken, and then when we're eating ours, they'll be eating theirs, and just, you know, that would be a really nice thing, wouldn't it? And I'm like, yeah, that would be a lovely thing to do, because meat is a very rare luxury in a slum community. Food is a rare luxury. Most families eat maximum one meal a day, and it's never meat. So to give them meat, and let alone chicken, which is the best, was quite a nice thing to think we could do. So I said to them, brilliant idea, go and order 200 chickens and order them to be delivered on the day of the party. And this lovely pastor who lived outside the slum had a church hall. It was just some wood and some iron sheeting, but it provided shade. And he'd said we could like, have our banquet there and like, tell, the, tell the car to come and deliver the meat. What I saw in my brain, and I don't know what happened... Something went wrong, something misfired. And in my head, what I was picturing was this lovely big refrigerated truck. You know what I mean? Like, do-do-do-do-do, reversing up to our hall and unloading crates of lovely, freshly prepared chicken that was all wrapped up lovely, and we'd hand them to pop in the oven. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) But these families that we live and serve with, they don't have electricity. They do not have an oven. They definitely don't have a fridge. They live in mud shacks. They have nothing. And so my Ugandan staff member, instinctively understanding that, ordered 200 live chickens. But it was a complete shock to me and Simon when this flatbed truck arrives, and there they all are, like, squawking and flapping and biting. I'm like, oh, my word. And then two hours it took me and Simon to chase around, trying to catch these birds. And I hate animals. No, I just... That's bad. I don't not... I don't hate them. I don't like them. And so I'm, I like people. <laughs> oh, dear. I like people. And that's my thing. Animals are not my thing. So I'm like trying to catch these chickens and like hand them over. It's really quite funny. The community thought it was brilliant and they loved it and they laughed a lot. But anyway, word soon got out that we were giving away free food in the, in the local church hall. And so, so many people started to come. They came from everywhere, you know. It was just more and more and more people coming. And, and I'm looking at the amount of people who are arriving and I'm looking at the amount of food that we have. And I'm like, it's not enough. It's not enough. And what you have to understand is that slum... Dwellers are very volatile people. And you can go from everything being absolutely fine to things being incredibly violent and very dangerous, literally in a moment. And I thought, we're actually going to have a riot on our hands if we can't feed these people and we're going to be in danger. 
So I said to my team, as you're dishing out the food, the huge saucepans like this, as you're dishing out the food, just be really, really careful, like small portions, please. Just, you know, be really kind of careful. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then they started piling these mountains of food. And I'm like, rain it in, put it back. But they didn't. They just kept piling it on. It'll be fine, Nicola, it'll be fine. And my heart's pounding because I'm concerned for our safety. And uh, anyway, everyone ate. Hundreds of people came through, way more people than we catered for. And I went to the back and I was like, say, well done, brilliant job. You just about stretched it out. There's no look inside the saucepan. So I looked inside the saucepan and it was almost the same amount of food as when we'd begun. And I couldn't believe it because I'd done my maths very, very carefully. We try to steward our resources very, very well because we often don't have a lot. <laughs> I knew how much food I'd bought. So I said, okay, well, let's ask everyone up for seconds then. So the whole place, men, women, and children, came and had a second mountain. And I went to the back, and I'm like, Nicola, look, the food is all still there. I said, this doesn't make any sense. Call them up a third time. They came up a third time. Not everybody. Some people were full by then. <laughs> but some of them came up, and they had their food, you know. And then we had food left over. So I said to the guys, right, well, come on then, let's pick them up. So we picked up. I've got pictures of me and Simon holding these massive saucepans because they're super, super heavy and walking around the whole of the surrounding village going, anybody want some free food? And people were coming, running out, and they would bring like, um, like a jerry can, you know, or a bucket, and we would be pouring this food in. And if they didn't have that, they bought a plastic bag, and we'd be pouring the food, and they'd tie it up and run home and then come back with another one. We went all the way around this community, so we got to the last family, and we poured out the food, and then the food ran out. I was just amazed. I was like, wow, that was a miracle. And I think that's our story of the last 10 years, is that over and over again, we've seen Jesus come and just take the small offering of our lives, the very little, really, that we have to give him. And he's taken hold of it and gone, you know what? I'm going to take that offering that you've given me and I'm going to fill it with myself. And then I'm going to do something beautiful, miraculous with it and through it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And my very simple encouragement to you this morning, and it is very simple, is just this. Do not disregard the potential of your life. Do not disregard the potential of his life made manifest through your life. Catherine Booth, who is one of my heroes in the faith, I love her. She was a forerunner. She was prophetic. She was groundbreaking. She was tenacious, and she let nothing hold her back. I like that. And she used to say that as she tucked her children in at night, every night she would say to them, you were born to help change the world. And it's true. We were born to help change the world. Heidi Baker always says, we, we stop for the one, but we believe for the nations. And it's through what we do in our everyday, you know, the little moments in our everyday life. Do not disregard the potential of it when it is fully yielded to Jesus. And he is allowed to come and manifest himself in it and through it. You see, even in those moments of our deepest vulnerability and our insecurity, he calls you lovely. And in those moments of life when we feel all so small and all so weak, that's when he comes 
and his power is made utterly perfect. You see, this is the thing. Our circumstance does not get to define who God is. It works the other way around. Who God is defines our circumstance. It's very different. You see, circumstance said, there's 5,000 hungry people and a tiny amount of food. But then Jesus came and he poured himself in and suddenly something miraculous takes place. Circumstance said, you are surrounded by thousands of people who are locked down in poverty, disease, death, violence and corruption. But then Jesus comes and he takes the little offering, that little offering of our lives, and he fills it with himself. And suddenly something beautiful begins to happen. And little by little, step by step, day by day, things begin to change. And marriages are restored. And families come back together. And children go to school. And people can feed their, their communities. And salvation begins to work itself out. And which doctors bow the knee to Jesus? And suddenly whole communities in one day give their lives to follow him. Slowly, day by day, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him first. And he will direct your path.